This is Help Wanted, the show that tackles all the big work questions you cannot ask anyone else. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And I'm New York Times bestselling author and money expert, Nicole Lappin. The helpline is open. Today on Help Wanted, I wanted to lift the MNN veil even more than usual. So I co-host this show and also a solo daily show, Money Rehab. And those shows and other awesome business and finance shows are part of a network that I used my life savings to build. Money News Network is more than my baby. It is me. When something bad happens with it, I feel bad, but like really, really bad. It affects me more than I ever thought. Now, don't get me wrong. I am so proud to have not taken on investors. I am so, so proud to have bootstrapped through a crappy time for advertising that I had to navigate right out of the gate. And I am extremely proud to be able to pay our lean, mean, badass team really well. But it hits differently when all that money comes essentially out of one banking portal. I choose every day between spending on personal stuff and spending on stuff for the business, and I think you know which wins. Make no mistake, we are doing really well as a company, and I have personally been able to build a rich, full life that Younger Lappin would be so proud of. But self-funding this company has not only affected my net worth, but my self-worth in big ways. I know, though, I am not alone here. In a world that funding is hard to come by generally, and most especially for female founders, there's a growing crew of us who not only sacrifice sleep and friends, as is often expected in startup land, but who feel the ups and downs of the business extra hard. Because when you're self-funding, you and your business have no safety net but you. So I wanted to talk more about this with one of my favorite self-funded founders, Christina Stemple. She started Farm Girl Flowers, and she gets these feelings better than anyone. Christina Stemple, welcome to Help Wanted. Thanks for having me, Nicole and Jason. I'm excited to be here. Excited you're here. I'm excited to see you again. We did a panel, uh, I think it was like five years ago, at Blog Her with other entrepreneurs. I think Maggie Q was one of the panelists. And I just loved hearing your story. And then I stumbled across a Marie Claire article talking about self-funding your startup and how it affects your self-worth. I am currently self-funding a network. And so, so much of what you said resonated with me. Can you tell our listeners how you started the company and how much you started with? Yeah, yeah. I started, this is going to age me. I, the five years is, is much better than what I'm about to say. Um, 13 years ago from my dining room table, I didn't start it from, I think this is really important to, to state, especially as a female entrepreneur. Um, I didn't start it as like a passion project. I didn't love flowers. I didn't grow up frolicking in my grandmother's garden. I think a lot of times a female starts a creative business. You know, the, the story just becomes like, oh, she's so lucky she turned her hobby into a business. And it was nothing like that. I carried an idea notebook around with me. I probably had 4,000 business ideas before I came up with this one. I annoyed all of my friends and family with like, you know, every girl's night would become like a focus group of like, Hey, what do you guys think about iron on pockets for your suits? And Hey, you want to try these out and stuff like that. <laughs> I was like, basically, if you're old enough to remember the guy that would be on TV with the like question marks on his blazer. I do remember that guy. Yeah, that was me, you know? So I came up with the idea. I was working at a university and I oversaw a, a department that did events. 
uh, for the school. And I saw how much we were spending on flowers and decor. So that led me down a rabbit hole of research on the weekends because I was at Dork. Pretty much I saw it as an untapped, like, you know, the last undisrupted product category that I'd found from all those 4,000 sessions of research. And I was like, why has nobody disrupted this space yet? You know, I'm in Silicon Valley. That was the word that was used every day. So I just tried to, you know, figure out a better way for this problem I saw of like, you know, when I'd send my mom flowers in Indiana, I didn't like the options that were out there. Found out that younger consumers didn't like the options as well. And I thought, well, I could do that better. So I came up with a new business model and I had, you know, very naively, you know, I thought I have so much money saved for this. I had $49,000 to answer your question on what I started it with. And I thought, you know, $50,000, more money than I've ever saved in my life. So that's enough to start a business and live off of, I should state that wasn't just like a separate account, you know, that was like, everybody was like, that's my rent in San Francisco and, you know, living expenses as well. Seems like a lot of money until you start spending it. Exactly. And then it goes so quick, right? And you're like, okay, I'm, you know, living on ramen and Lipton tea bags for a very long time. But I just thought, you know, this is my opportunity, early 30s, I wanted to take it. And so I jumped. I actually want to talk about those ramen days and the tea bags that you talked about switching from coffee to Lipton tea because the unit economics stretched that pot a little further to six cents a cup. Yes. Like it really got down to that. Yes. Yes. I got down to $411 in my bank account at one point and rent was coming up in a week and a half. You know, my rent in San Francisco was a lot more than $411. So I've almost run out of money so many times And, and not just in the early days. Like everyone's like, oh, aren't you, you know, you've made it. And I'm like, when you're bootstrapped, you never say that you've made it. That That's a difference. Like you've never made it because tomorrow could is another day. There's still at the size that we are now, there's, you know, like, whoa, I didn't plan for that expense time after time after time. And, you know, there's no nest egg. Christina, I think a lot of people have heard and I have heard founders say I nearly ran out of money. And often give a very exact amount because it's burned into your brain. But can you just spend a moment telling us, like, pick one of those moments where you literally almost ran out of money and what happened? Like, how did you not run out of money? Or what did you do with those final dollars? Because that's a thing that often gets packed into people's stories. But when you're about to face that exact experience, I bet it's pretty helpful to hear from someone like you who is like, okay, here's what I did when I only had $411. Yeah. I'm going to give two short examples of that because both are kind of different and I think relevant. Um, sure. You know, the first one, I got down to $411. I was fortunate that I had an outstanding invoice that hadn't been paid for a corporate order that saved me. So I got on the phone and I nagged them and I probably called them 14 times until they paid that invoice for that order. And that was, I still remember it, like you said, exact numbers, it was $3,000. It was mm. just a few dollars over $3,000. And that saved me then, you know, if they had not paid that invoice on time, I would have been in trouble. Right. It saved you for the month. It didn't, it's like, then you just have the same problem next month. Exactly. Exactly. A more relevant one, I, I think would be 2021. So it's, it's, you know, 11 years after I started the company and during COVID, like everyone, no, none of the patterns have, have been the same, right? So projections haven't been the same. Spending hasn't been the same from everybody's heard it before the supply chain issues, the you know costs going up and container prices and everything. But you know we were shut down in San Francisco. We had to come up with other ideas for how to stay in business. I had to you know figure out how to save the company. Then did it, but how we did that was opening uh, facilities in locations we norm we wouldn't have had we had the ability to 
analyze the data more fully into, you know, inbound transportation, outbound transportation, things like that. Um, it wouldn't have been places that we would have opened. We only opened because opportunistically those counties allowed us to with agriculture exemptions and things like that. So 2021 came and I remember 2020, we had a, a boon year, like a lot of people in gifts. This was nothing we did well. When c- people come on and, you know, say, you know, we killed it in 2020. I'm like, we didn't kill it. Like we were in a position where we were lucky. And I don't use that word very often where people were sending gifts when they couldn't be with them themselves. And so we did hundred percent growth year over year. And we had marketing turned off for 10 and a half months fully. The only thing we did was send emails out. We couldn't even keep up with, we couldn't get the supply for the demand. We could have had two or 300% growth easily had we had the supply and had marketing turned on. Um, so we did nothing but try to, we just sprinted to try to keep up in 2020 and open facilities. We opened five facilities in five weeks. It was crazy. I drove to Miami from San Francisco twice. Oh my God. That's a long drive. Yeah, it's a long drive. But 2021 came and 2020, I had said over and over again, I even said it on, on Marketplace. I said, you know, that we're gonna, we may be in trouble next year. I don't know what's going to happen next year. At the end of 2020, just to be clear, like you reported that you made more than $60 million of revenue. Yes. We did. Okay. So just to like going from the 650 square foot apartment mm-hmm. and six cent cups of yeah. tea to $60 million is a huge shift. And congratulations. Thank you. 32 million in 2019 to over 61 million in 2020 was giant during a pandemic of, you know, trying to open warehouses and have them shut down and all these things, right? It was, it was hard. It was really hard. And that's why I think this is really relevant because, you know, people would think at 60 million, you're fine, right? Like you're absolutely fine. And people think I'm like rolling in it and I'm living in a mansion. Sounds like made it. It sounds like you just said a minute ago, like you don't like the term made it, but uh, 60 million sounds like made it. Sounds like made it. All bootstrap. But they don't realize you might've spent 62 to, <laughs> to make 61. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, that is not like profit in the door, you know? And so 2021 came and you know, I'd said like when the vaccines become available, we may be in trouble. I don't know what's going to happen then when people can go spend time with people in person. And that's exactly what happened. April, 2021, our sales plummeted for the first time ever in 11 years. We'd never had a week that week over week, year over year was down ever. We'd never had less than I think 11% growth ever on a week, you know? Um, we'd never had less than 20% growth year over year. And usually it was more like 200%, you know, early years. So it was an un, unchartered territory for us. And I was like, oh crap, what are, what are we going to do? We just opened all these, these facilities, hired all these people. We have hundreds of people working and I don't know what to do. And at that point, I should say, I was the the finance department too. A very flat organization where I was every C level, you know, and I didn't have the training to know quick enough. Like, okay, we're in trouble now. I didn't, you know, we went from one PL that I should have split into many PLs with different locations, but I didn't hadn't done that because I was just running in 2020 to keep up. So I didn't know which facilities were bleeding. I didn't know where we were in trouble. And it very quickly caught up. And in June, May, June 2021, I literally had three weeks of cash. Three weeks as sixty million dollar company, and I'm like, I'm I'm gonna fold at eleven years in and over. You know, that's not how this story ends. No, so I spent three days whiteboarding any idea I could come up with to save the company. Came up with an idea that I thought might work. Had no idea. Um, it changed our distribution model completely. It would require that I lay off two thirds of the company. And the only way for me to test it was to do a simulation on our website, basically, where I pretended we you know, had to wait this long for this type of product, create a new product category that we called Burlap Lights, 
you know, all the things. So we did that within two days, we had created this new product category. We were launching it at certain facility partners and had, you know, kind of hacked the back end of the website with the inventory levels to like pretend that this was the way that we were operating. And I had modeled it out that if we did 14% reduction in sales, it would be worth doing. And uh, ran the simulation for a day and a half. That's all the time I had. And we were 13.6 reduction in revenues. Like, I'm like, this is as close as it comes. That was on a Thursday night. We closed one facility Monday the next week, and we closed the second facility on Tuesday the next week. Wow. Yeah. And it worked, thankfully. And that's why I'm still here talking to you. But it, it could have not very easily. This was an all-in bet, right? Which is to say, if that didn't work, that was the end. That was the end. Yeah. It was, it was folding. And what that means when you're a solo S-corp CEO founder is you declare bankruptcy as well. So the company would go under and I would file bankruptcy and I would just you know, lick my wounds kind of thing. (laughs) So still after that many years, you didn't separate yourself from the business. You put all of your personal money in from the beginning, right? You put your $49,000 in and it's not like you didn't want to raise money, right? You had 104 rejections from investors. So you put all of your money in, you kept reinvesting all of your money in, and that never stopped? No. I I mean, I never, $49,000 was all the money that I've ever put into the company. And then I just reinvest the profits, but I didn't pay myself for many years. And then I paid myself $60,000 a year until 2020. So 2020, I raised it to, I think I paid myself maybe 150 that year. And then I wasn't sitting, I hadn't taken $10 million out of the company as a disbursement or anything like that. I just reinvested, let's say I like kind of ran it like Amazon that I would like run it at a zero profit margin, reinvest it. And for example, a year that we did 32 million, so that was 2019, our profit was $36,000. So I ran it as close to zero as you possibly can. Meaning I worry about payroll still, you know, but I was reinvesting into the growth of the company. That's what you have to do if you want to scale a company large while bootstrapping. You have to spend less than you make, but as close as you can to reinvest the profits back in. But if you were looking death in its eye, really, like with three weeks of cash left, even after all of that time, would you have still taken whatever you had kept in your bank account if you paid yourself even 60 grand? If you had some personal amount in your bank account, would you have put that money in to save the company? No, here's my hindsight. What I would say for people listening is a, a mistake I've made is not taking care of myself along the way. One thing that I would that I highly recommend and what I'm working on for myself right now is to never be in a position again where you're like, I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy and walk away from this. Potentially, I've taken 100% of the risk on myself and I haven't even paid myself a living wage. You know, I, I would never do that again. And so what I would tell people now is don't do what I did. Reinvest a portion back in, but take care of yourself. You know, pay yourself a living wage. You know, if the average CEO salary is like $450,000 in this country or something, the Bay Area is probably way higher than that. You know, maybe don't do that, but pay yourself a living wage of 250 or something like that. So you can have some savings. And then, you know, maybe I would put some in back into the company if needed, because I'd have that nest egg that I've built myself and the, the growth would be slower. You know, I might not have hit 60, maybe we would have been at 50 million. That's fine. You know, even right now we're lower than that. We're much lower than that. What I did in 2021 after that is I, I decided that I'm going for profit, not growth. I knew what was coming ahead with the economy. We are half the size of a company, a little bit more than half the size that we were then intentionally. 
but we've added 12 points of profit margin and I can pay myself with that. I can, you know, pay my team members what they're, they're worth with that as well. And, you know, I'm setting us up more successfully. I think that we don't need to be as large of a company. Also, when you own hundred percent of the company, something to remember is that that number for an exit becomes much smaller of what you need. You don't need a hundred million dollar exit. If mine is 10% of that, that's great, you know? And I can definitely get that now with the profit margin we've added, you know, to the bottom line and the EBITDA that we've added that most companies don't have. Um, Because they aren't aren't able to make the decisions the same way that I can for the company because they are reporting to a bunch of investors that need that valuation to be what the last round was based off of. Yeah, I think what I was getting at is if you were able after that decade plus to separate yourself psychologically from the company, like you've said that Farm Girl Flowers was you and vice versa, and you never felt like you could separate things. Uh, You've said that you've sacrificed friends and sleep and time. You live, you breathe your business. And when you're bootstrapping, there's zero safety net. So I, I was just curious if that ever really changed. It sounds like you still remember the hungry years, the literal hungry years, no matter what is in the company bank account. Yeah, that's a great question. If I'm really honest, I don't think I have, I don't know if there's a way to fully separate yourself emotionally from the company. I think you can separate yourself more financially from the company, but as a founder, and I definitely see that difference between founder CEOs and hired gun CEOs. I care so much, you know, um, nobody's going to work as hard as you. Like when people say, well, bring in a president and all that. And it's like, cool. Yeah, you can do that. Do I think I'm going to find a president that's going to care as much as me about the company? No, you know, that's just, natural, I think, and to be expected. But yeah, your your failures as a company definitely impact how you feel about yourself emotionally. You know, your your mental health is definitely contingent on the company more than it probably should. So then let me ask you how you manage that because I'm thinking back to this moment where you came up with what maybe was a solution to save the company. And now after hearing the way that you feel so tied personally, emotionally to the company, that's not just, okay, this is the last ditch effort to save the company. This is like the last ditch effort to save you in some way or some version of yourself, how you understand yourself right now. So, I mean, look, at that particular moment, I don't know that there's any amount of like mental health uh, practices that can be done to make you feel good. You probably just didn't sleep and were having an anxiety attack the whole time. Confirm if that is true. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Outside of those incredibly high stress moments, how do you emotionally manage it? There's no, I mean, there's absolutely no way that if the company fails, I'm not going to feel like I failed, right? There's no way that I'm going to feel like great about myself, but I am very realistic in thinking, you know, even if it does fail right now, I will have succeeded along the way. I mean, I bootstrapped a $60 million company or a $36 million company, you know, with profit or 60 million with no profit, you know, like I've, you know, that's something that most people have not done, especially in perishable product. I don't really know anybody who's done that in perishable product. So I take the little wins and I try to remind myself of those, but there's just no way around. This is my heart and soul. And along the way I have gotten, and I think it'd be impossible not to, I've gotten more realistic about, you know, with thicker skin, things don't bother me as much. Like the little things don't bother me as much, but the overall win or loss of the company will come down to, you know, uh, I'll feel good or bad about it and whatever the outcome is. And I don't really know any way for it not to, I just want this to succeed. And I, you know, I, if it doesn't, I'm going to feel bad about it. 
<laughs> I'll say it, you know, I'd call a spade a spade. I, you know, I don't want to like lead listeners to think any, any differently that they're, that there's something wrong with them if they're feeling that way. Well, it really resonated with me on a personal level because I've put so much of my life savings into a company right now. For context, just Christina and for listeners, this show that you are listening to, if you're listening to it, Christina, the show that you were on because you're on it is part of a media company that Nicole is funding and like any company, and particularly in media, you know, there's ups and downs. And I, I, as, you know, Nicole's friend and joining her on this journey, I see at least some of it. Um, and they're really hard days. And so you're at the very early paces of the longer journey that Christina has been describing, but I'm sure it connects a lot right now. Yeah, it really resonated with me. And it, you've always been so real. And I've always admired that about you, Christina, and love listening to you talk about business because it's like so not BS at all. And when you were talking about the unit economics of your tea, like I, it really st stood out to me because, you know, if I put all of my money into this company, it's like, yeah, I could get a dog walker for my dog who's sitting here right now, or I could hire an editor. It's like it all comes out of the same pot. And there's so much psychological mind fuckery that happens to that that you really articulated in a way that truly helped me as I was trying to navigate some of these early days. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, I can be transparent because I don't have a board. I don't have, you know, all I, I have some lawyers sometimes that tell me to keep my mouth shut a little bit and <laughs> some stuff, but everything else, I just wish people would talk about more, you know, how hard it is. You know, I think there's shame in it sometimes. And like, you know, wanting everybody to think that everything is just great. And, you know, you're this powerful CEO and everything is like amazing and all that. And it's just not, that's not real. It's just not real. And you've been talking lately about bringing a badge of honor to bootstrapping and sort of. We've seen this general shift away from glorifying unicorns and placing more value on strappy businesses. I mean, we've seen a lot of these glorified unicorns fold lately because they were bloated with funding and they they grew and they tried to appease the board or the investors uh, and the multiples that they needed to hit because of that money that they took in. So talk to me about placing that badge of honor on bootstrapping, but also at the same time talking about how shitty it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't, <laughs> it, it's not convincing anyone to want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you having me on because I think more people need to talk about the realness about bootstrapping and also the other side of it and how it's, it's an option. Like I think so many people I talk to just think if they don't get funding, they're obviously going to fail. They're not going to be able to, you know, succeed at their company. I'm like, that's, there's other ways. It's just not as sexy to talk about, you know, Inc and Entrepreneur and Fast Company and Forbes aren't, you know, talking about a media company, you know, that like, it's easier to pull that information from Crunchbase on who got funding and write a story about it because they have to turn that around so quickly because they need, you know, 30 stories a day that they're, they're churning out. And that's easy. That's the easy thing. You know, there's no list of like the best bootstrapped companies out there, you know, and self-funded companies like Jason. It's true. It's because it's a much harder thing to put together. That's the problem. Christina, you're totally right that all that information is just on Crunchbase. So it's easy to round that kind of thing up. But I really do as the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, I really do believe that I and my peers at Entrepreneur and throughout the media are definitely part of a perception problem. And that is that the amount of focus on funding and treating funding as if it is its own kind of success. 
that somebody who had raised a large amount of money has succeeded in some way. I mean, they they, ha- they haven't. It, the, all they did is they gave away some of their company and now they have other bosses. It doesn't mean that they're going to succeed. And so treating it that way, I think, has probably done a disservice to founders who now think that that is a metric of success that they have to hit. Yeah, this is my favorite topic and then probably the one I'm most passionate about because the most freeing moment of my life since, you know, since starting Farm Girl was the moment I realized in that hundred and it was actually the 101st pitch uh, that I did in that moment, I realized that success does not equal funding. And my whole, like it, it improved my self-worth so much. I can't even state like once I realized that the investors weren't the smartest people in the room, like, and it sounds like body and arrogant of me to say, but they aren't, you know, when I was like researching the people I was pitching to, and I'm like, you've never run a company. You've been a consultant at, you know, like Bain after going to like prep schools and then colleges and stuff. And yes, I know I didn't even go to college. You can, you know, shame me all you want, but I've run a company and I haven't run out of money for 10 years. And that's something that, that means something, but I agree. And I I'm friends with the, the CEO at Crunchbase. And we've talked about this many times on how, like, how do you get that information of companies that haven't just, just raised, you know, because that does not equal success. You know, when you pull up and they have negative EBITDA and they've raised $300 million and I'm like, there's no path to profitability with that much money. To me, that does not mean that you're the smartest person and that you're have the best company and that it's doing the best. That's not a success metrics at all. Like what is your path to profitability? And I think that that, to your question, Nicole, on, you know, why do I, why am I talking so much about it being a badge of honor? Because now in this economy, I am feeling a little bit like a superstar in these rooms where, you know, among my peers, where they're just like, how do you spend less than you make? Like, break it down for me. How do you have a $60 and 10 cent, you know, customer acquisition cost? And I was like, you're just going to have to be a smaller company for a minute. If you want to make a profit, you're going to have to not be growth at all costs. You're going to have to look at like, does that make sense to spend $85 to acquire a customer to spend 96? Like things like that, that, you know, that to me, like those are the smart people that are looking at it and saying like, no, we shouldn't spend more than $25 on customer acquisition cost. If we can't do that and hit this number, then we should be a smaller company right now to make sure we can make it through. Yes, I, I didn't go to college. I don't have a fancy degree, but I know how to like work numbers in a spreadsheet to make sure that I can, you know, have that number at the very bottom be black in some some respect. And so I think it's important right now, especially because money is hard to get. It's very expensive. You're going to give away a lot of your company to get it. And it's probably not the best thing you should be doing, especially in an early stage. Do you really want to give away 50% of your company for a million dollars? You know, like I'm talking to people where there's term sheets where I'm like, are you crazy? Do not do that right now. You know, stick around. Help Wanted will be right back. Nicole, have you ever thought about the one that got away? Jason, I am happily in a relationship. You know that. No, the hire that got away. Someone that you thought was perfect for your team, but ah, they were already with another employer. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, I think about her all the time. Well, it's not too late. You can reach out to that person on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals that you can't find anywhere else, even people who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Okay, looks like it's time for me to shoot my shot. Do it. And I know you may have your heart set on one person, but if you do want to open it up and post a role to a bigger applicant pool, you can do it for free at linkedin.com slash 
help wanted. And because there are so many professionals on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. So you'll never have a one that got away again. Incredible. That's linkedin.com slash help wanted. Yep. LinkedIn.com slash help wanted. Terms and conditions apply. Happy hiring ever after. Nicole, have you ever thought about the one that got away? Jason, I am happily in a relationship. You know that. No, the hire that got away. Someone that you thought was perfect for your team, but ah, they were already with another employer. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, I think about her all the time. Well, it's not too late. You can reach out to that person on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals that you can't find anywhere else, even people who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Okay, looks like it's time for me to shoot my shot. Do it. And I know you may have your heart set on one person, but if you do want to open it up and post a role to a bigger applicant pool, you can do it for free at linkedin.com slash help wanted. And because there are so many professionals on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. So you'll never have a one that got away again. Incredible. That's linkedin.com slash help wanted. Yep linkedin.com slash help wanted terms and conditions apply happy hiring ever after welcome back to help wanted let's get to it well i think it's important too as as we've been thinking about this and thinking about taking on money that reaching a certain revenue threshold is super important before you even think about taking on money because i'm assuming christina you got to a point and a threshold where you could raise money like if you continued on past 104 pitches there was a point right where you were like no i'm not gonna even take money and was there that moment where you were like i'm just gonna say no because i've gone this far without money yes absolutely like now i could go raise money if i wanted to based on our profit margin or ebitda but it's a double-edged sword because in order to get that, I had to become a smaller company to get to show that there's profit, right? But then early, that's just because the environment has changed. The environment before when I would go pitch and be like, but we're profitable, I would literally have people tell me, well, that means you're not taking big enough risks. And I'm like, okay, so as a guy sitting in a, a conference room with a healthy salary where I'm like, I have to make payroll, you know? So I have to be profitable. So that does not mean I'm not taking big enough risks. It means that banks won't give you loans be, uh, for e-commerce unless you, you know, are a B2B company, not a B2C one where I don't have a big, you know, Walmart PO to show them because that's not how we sell. They haven't caught up with, you know, modern e-com companies. So I can't go to a bank and be like, please give me $2 million. Some of the newer finance options like ClearCo and things like that have been very helpful for us as we needed things for inventory and things like that. Um, but traditional models didn't work. And when I was pitching, they're like, well, your margins are, you know, gross margins are too tiny. And I'm like, yes, I mean, I understand that, but that's because we are reinvesting into growth right now and we don't have the scalability factor for our buying power and things like that. So I have to become a smaller company add, you know, points of margin. Now they'll invest in us because all the investors aren't growth at all costs now. Now they're going back to their portfolio companies and saying you have to have a path to profitability, which is basically like trying to make, you know, mom jeans into low riders or something, right? Like the, for like 
five years, they've been telling them growth at all costs, grow the company, grow the company. And now they're coming because, you know, the economic environment right now, they're saying, oh, but when are you going to make a profit? Profitability is back all of a sudden, back to basics. Yeah. Hello, crazy, breaking news. Companies should make money. I know. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting and it's ironic because you, I think, want to get to a certain level of revenue before taking on money. But once you get to that level of revenue, then you don't need to take on money. Yes. It's a double-edged sword. It's like chicken and egg thing. Now we don't need the money and now we can get it. You know, and people say like, get the money when you can. I don't agree with that either. Like, why would I give away a percentage of my company right now? Maybe go get a bank loan or things like that, lines of credit, if that's helpful when you don't need it. But otherwise I'm just like, why would I give away, you know, a chunk of my company when I don't need to now, when there's really no risk for the investors, very little risk, I should say, for the investors. This conversation has, for the person who is not building a business that has reached $60 million in revenue, you know, sounds complex and all the different things that you're juggling and the big numbers and talking to investors. But I have been continually struck in listening to both of you about how a lot of the fundamentals of this conversation and of the decisions that you've made, Christina, in a way come down to this very simple human thing that, Nicole, you and I have talked about a lot, which is how you define success. Because, you know, there are a lot of people who would hear the phrase out of your mouth, Christina, which is, well, you just have to decide to be a smaller company and, and think, oh, well, that means you have to decide to like win less or to give up something or to be weaker. But it's like, but no, that's only if you define success in a certain way. If you define success like the guy in a boardroom with a spreadsheet who's saying, well, you didn't take big enough risks. But that guy's got a different definition of success because he's able to, because all he cares about is the company that 10X'd his money and everybody else folded and that's a write-off and who cares, except that there were actual founders involved who had poured the $49,000 that they had in their life savings into the company. And now they don't have anything. So you have to define it for yourself. And so, Christina, for you, I think it's really valuable for people to hear you so confidently just talk about the intentionality of being smaller because that's what makes a successful or sustainable business for you right now. And that that's just the right decision and that you're comfortable doing that because you have a logic behind it and you have an ultimate goal. And then, Nicole... It reminds me of some of the very first conversations we had in you building this company where there was a decision very early on, which was like, how big do you go? Do we just launch with like 40 podcasts? Do we just try to roll up everybody? Here's a list of like 5,000 people we should reach out to. You remember those conversations? And then, and I remember you said at some point, you're like, your instinct is usually to go very, very big. But actually, in this case, I think the smart thing to do is to be manageable and to step into it with intention and not just go big because that's what it seems like you have to do. Do you remember that? It sounds right. I think that, you know, I remember being on another panel with the founder of Sugarfina and she started with her, I think, boyfriend at the time. And, and we had dinner one night and she was so excited. She's like, I forgot to tell you something. We're going bankrupt. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? She's like, no, this is great. We're back to like what the goals were when we started this company. We took on all this money and they wanted us to grow so quickly. And that's actually not what we wanted. We wanted like a $10 million business, you know, and that's what I thought of too. 
I don't know if we need to build a $5 billion business. Maybe just building a $10 million business is where it should be. And going along that path is clearer than getting bloated super quickly. But I'd love to know, Christina, how you've been able to, if at all, compartmentalize. Because along the way, if something bad happened in business, I mean, I'll I'll just speak for myself. I have a bad day. I'm like, crying or having an anxiety attack or drinking a lot of wine or having, you know, CBD gummies or all of the above. And I can't dissociate myself from the success or failures of what happens in the business. Could you? No, not in the early days. I can more so now. Um, Definitely more so now. This was a learned behavior. So there's hope, I promise. I, in 2021, I had to like very consciously work on separating my ego from growth numbers it really was a lack of self-confidence I had when I would go to like networking events or, you know, I'm in YPO, you know, an organization for CEOs and one of the only bootstrapped ones. And, you know, everyone's talking about how much money they raised. Well, my thing that I could talk about was what our growth was. I'd be like, well, you know, we just had 220% growth or whatever, you know, and that was my, like, my ego was tied to that. And once I realized that's why I was like crying in the shower every night, you know, and it was this attachment I had of like, to what you said, Jason, of, you know, my success was tied, no longer, it wasn't tied to raising funding. I'd finally gotten over that, you know, in probably 2018 or so, but then I attached my ego and my self-worth to that growth percentage or number. And I no longer had that anymore. So, you know, what I did as an exercise was I looked at big companies that everybody thinks, you know, are hugely successful at like Stitch Fix and Chewies and like giant, you know, the real, real, one of my favorite ones that I shot from and stuff. And I like took a deep dive at like what their numbers actually were and what their EBITDA was. And I compared mine with theirs and I felt much better than it, it's probably not super healthy because now I, I attach it to profit margin. I'm like, well, we've done this in profit margin, but at least it attached it to something that is healthier. I think for our company, your ego is going to be attached to things. When you have a bad day, you're still going to like, you know, have ugly shower cries like me or drink a bunch of wine like unicorn or something to cope with it but segmenting my ego, like I kind of embarrassed to say this, but like my goal, when I started farm girl, if you ask any of my first employees, what I said, my, my success goal was, it was to be on the cover of entrepreneur magazine. Hmm. Like literally that was what I attached. Like I'm going to be on the cover of entrepreneur magazine. For what it's worth. I've heard that so many times. It's it's really fascinating. I've heard that so many times. Why is that? I mean, it's because it's a marker of I don't know. You tell me because it was your goal, status, yeah. accomplishment, something about made it. I think that when you are there, then it's some kind of external validation. Yeah. But I think that that is a crazy thing to set as a goal, and the reason for that is because it is completely out of your control. Yeah. Completely right. Yep. Because it is not tied to anything. It's not tied to any kind of success metric. There isn't like a thing to work towards. It's not like, well, if I if I become a $500 million company, then that is what qualifies me for the June issue. And so it's crazy to outsource your satisfaction and your goals to things that you can't control. And that's why I think it's nuts for people to do that. But I've heard it so many times. Blocking and tackling wise, how would you suggest to separate bank accounts or money 
uh, in the early days. Yeah, um, I didn't do it soon enough. So <laughs> learn from me and do it sooner. I think it worked for me because all of my money went back into the company. It can be really messy if that's not the case. If you're like buying personal things, you know, with it and things like that. But I'm um, from accounting standpoint. But I would say segment it just so you feel more in control of your destiny of being able to pay your rent or mortgage or things like that, instead of it being so tied to the company, like whatever's happening with the company and pay yourself. Again, I'm just going to keep saying it, pay yourself at least what you can pay your living expenses on um, as soon as you can. But don't think of it like you said earlier, because I thought the same way. Yeah, Nicole made a face, just to be clear. (laughs) I don't pay myself. I don't. I'd rather pay other people. But then I have gotten to a place where I have these you know, thoughts, the the Lipton tea thoughts. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should buy less groceries or something like that because we need to like buy all these things to grow and expand. I mean, buy cheaper groceries, buy generics or whatever, you know, like don't like splurge as much as you typically would. Or, you know, I remember the first time we were on the Today Show, our publicist asked me, it was very embarrassing. She's like, could you buy something that doesn't have holes in it? Like I literally had shopping for clothes Aww. in like five years. And I was like, no. No, I can't, Flory. <laughs> Literally, like I can't. Um, I it's not. I don't have thirty dollars that I can spend on something right now, even from Target or something. Like I'm gonna wear a ratty sweater now. I look at that, and I'm like so embarrassed that I wore that on TV. But you know that do those things. But pay yourself enough to pay your rent and utilities. And instead of you know hiring a copywriter or hiring a you know like I was like I just want a floral designer, so I don't have. I still had a quota on the floor making hundred bouquets a day until 2016. Six years in. Because there's one less designer, two really, because I could make what two designers could. So, you know, I still have have that. So I say like kind of go in the middle, like buy generics, don't splurge as much on things that you want to splurge on, you know, but hire one less person. It might mean a little bit more work for you to be able to pay yourself what you would have paid them. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Christina, and being so open and honest and and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. Literally, this is, I probably shouldn't say, it was one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Like the, the topics you guys are talking about, I think are so important and things that people aren't talking about. And so I just really appreciate it. And I hope the people listening really appreciate it too, because if we get more of this, this messaging out, and Nicole, you need help with anything, let me know. Like, I am so proud of you for doing this. And I'm here with you if you like need anything or just somebody to drink wine over Zoom with at night. I'm going to maybe take you up on that if you don't mind. <laughs> I'm there. Help Wanted is a production of Money News Network. Help Wanted is hosted by me, Jason Pfeiffer. And me, Nicole Lappin. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. If you want some help, email our helpline at helpwanted at moneynewsnetwork.com for the chance to have some of your questions answered on the show. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive content and to see our beautiful faces. Maybe a little dance? Oh, I didn't sign up for that. All right. Well, talk to you soon. 